Welcome to the Impact Sessions, a business podcast hosted by me, Nick Bramley, CEO and Director of Impact at Impactus Group. The Impact Sessions brings you weekly insights and experiences from some of my most valued, trusted and influential business contacts across a range of current, interesting and hopefully thought-provoking subjects designed to give you some practical tips and ideas to drive continued success in your business. On this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Richard Hall from PDM. Richard's passionate about innovation and design in the manufacturing process, and we're going to share some interesting ideas and thoughts on taking your idea for a product from concept to commercialization. It's a fascinating conversation. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Okay, well, today I'm delighted on the podcast to welcome Richard Hall. Richard Hall is Managing Director of PDM, and that's Product Design and Manufacture, based in the beautiful town of Thirsk in North Yorkshire. Um, On Richard's website, it says that we find clever, innovative, and cost-effective ways of taking concepts and developing them into useful products for the people who will benefit most. Richard, welcome along to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, you and I have worked together for a little while, and uh, I'm always hugely impressed when I look at the uh, the work that you guys are doing. Very creative, very innovative. You've got a young team of uh, sort of design uh, engineers and designers who are, are fantastic. So I'd just like to go through a few questions with you and, and just understand sort of the power of innovation and design in the product uh, development arena, really, if that's okay. Yeah, sure, far away. Okay, so um, you work across many sectors. I know one of the big ones is medical devices, uh, but you do healthcare, automotive, consumer, retail, uh, to name but a few. Um, What do you think is the best journey for getting an idea right through to to market? Yeah, good question. I think, just to recap on what you mentioned, we do work in many different sectors, whether it's industrial or medical or consumer products. And it baffles people about how we can work on a medical device it goes into the abdomen, for example, and also a consumer product for retail. Um, but the key, as you, as you intimated, is the journey or the process. So innovation, design and product development is very much a strategic process. So it gets more difficult with disrupt, disruptive innovation because there's, there's not necessarily been a um, previously uh, trodden path with disruptive innovation. Um, the way we do it is we actually tailor the process to the product need and the challenge Um, So after being around for such a long time, we started out in 2005. Um, Our strength is identifying the individual product and creating the journey for that particular product. So innovation by nature hasn't really been done before. So it's all new and um, new processes, new products, new services. So what we have to do is be very agile in terms of the process, understanding what the requirements are, what research needs to be done. And that kind of formulates the flight path for that particular product. So whether it is a, a, a medical device that goes into the abdomen or a, or a nursery product, it's very, very much process-driven. Um, I think a lot of people think that design is kind of a process which is latter stages of, of, of innovation, where you try and work out what it might look like and how it might function. And that is that can be the case in some aspects, but with the stuff that we do, we have to really understand what the problem statement is and therefore what the design brief is. Um, so it's very, in answer to your question, it's very, very much process driven. To create a really good, innovative product, it requires a lot of thought, a lot of process, and a lot of strategy as well. 
Okay. And and like any parts of, of, of business, process seems quite important. Is is that uh, a step-by-step? Does it matter what you're designing or manufacturing or getting ready for manufacture? Is the process pretty much the same then, Richard? There is a there is there are many design processes out there um, that if you can Google you can find something called the double di- double diamond design process which kind of starts with starts with something called divergent thinking, which is kind of effectively where you are uh, free thinking, brainstorming, lots of ideas, looking at technology, new processes, trying to lend technologies from other industries, for example, um, and that's kind of how we how we kind of operate. When we start a journey with a particular client, in terms of trying to ex- ex- explain the process, we kind of normally uh, talk about the Gartner hype cycle. And if you kind of Google that, you'll see that it's a, a graphical illustration which kind of broadly plots uh, the innovation process from start to finish. So you'll have this thing called peak of inflated expectations where everybody thinks they've got a, a fantastic world-class money-making idea. But the Gartner hype cycle kind of tracks into something called the valley of death, and that's where people realise that actually having a good idea is only part of the process. Mm. I would probably say out of 100 good ideas, maybe 2 or 3% are successful because there are so many things that need to align to make something commercially viable, uh, protectable in terms of intellectual property, user-centred design, um, and something that actually makes money. Um, so I think a lot of it is, um, you know, there's lots of aspects to kind of product development. And I think people kind of misunderstand what product design actually is. Um, Innovate UK, for example, have just recently spent quite a lot of money uh, trying to highlight the importance of good design at the start of a process. So good design isn't necessarily designing a product. It's actually designing a journey and understanding the fundamental aspects and research, which kind of informs the design process. Okay, so... Obviously, people are embarking on a journey because they've got this idea to change the world or make a fortune or build a retirement fund or whatever it might be because they've, they've come up with something great. Um, in your experience then, where do most people or organisations hit the buffers on that journey? Is the, is the one area that people are just getting wrong and, and that, that sort of derails them? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think a part of it comes down to educating people and clients and prospective clients. Um in the actual kind of process of designing, the actual design aspect comes about halfway through. The first 50% is research, which kind of informs the design, as I mentioned earlier. Mm. I think a lot of people look at programs like Dragon's Den, um, of that kind of ilk, where they see that people have got an idea and effectively are trying to make money from it. And I think the fundamental aspects are that people are not informed or misunderstand the actual process. And what they do is... They kind of leapfrog from having a really innovative idea. They've perhaps Googled it and found that it doesn't actually exist and probably spoken to some friends or colleagues who've told them that, yes, that is a really good idea. But they've kind of kind of fundamentally leapfrogged um, major aspects of, of product development and kind of found themselves um, in their mindset almost kind of selling products. Um, I think a lot of it is down to understanding what the, what the journey is. So kind of in answer to your question, when we meet prospective clients, I spend an awful lot of time trying to explain to them the actual innovation process and where the risks are. And if a client doesn't doesn't kind of understand or they agree that they they know what they don't know, then we'll probably not work with that particular client because there'll be an awful lot of kind of dynamics in trying to explain a prospective client or a, or a stakeholder team 
how we need to take it forward. There's an awful lot of trust goes into product development. And I think fundamentally, you've really got to have a good um, understanding with a client and kind of trust each other, as with most businesses. Uh, but with product design and innovation, there is no there is no kind of trodden path for that particular kind mm. of uh, requirement from for, from that particular client. So it's very kind of, you know, there is a lot of trust involved in this thing. I think for us, the way that we work is that realistically, when we do start on a new innovation or a product, we don't actually know if we can create a solution. Um, but having the, the strategy and the process which drives us forward and also the track record of projects which we've brought to market and mm. things that we've developed and commercially viable um solutions where clients are making money it just demonstrates to clients that you know we have got a good track record and we we do know what we're doing and a lot of it is down to kind of working very collaboratively with, with a client and sometimes actually telling a client that their particular idea is probably a good idea but it probably needs amending so it's kind of a nice <laughs> way to explain to a client there are other ways to skin that particular cat okay so being polite about that they're actually wrong is is a, is a real skill set when it comes to consulting with them i guess I think so because our 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 motivation is to get products into market. So we do the usual 3D computer generated renders and we have virtual reality platforms which is really, you know, an interesting kind of thing that we have. But what really makes us tick as a, as a business is to actually get products into market. So when I go into theater and see products that we've designed being used uh, and I go into the high street and I see nursery products that parents are using that gives me and the team a massive kick and that's kind of our job satisfaction. And that is what we drive for with every product. Our intention is to get every product to market. And if it's not right, not the right fit with a client, for example, from the outset, then we have a, I think we have a duty to ourselves to explain to the client that they're probably going to need a certain amount of budget and time and a realisation that actually they might need to take their hands off the steering wheel and let part of the team come in and and. You know, the, the client would need to be agile to understand that you know, there are lots of different ways to innovate. There are lots of different pitfalls, but you need to you have the right team on board that can kind of take it forward. Okay. Pick up on two things there. One, I've got a little story about Dragon's Den. I don't watch it anymore because it became a bit samey for me. But in the early days, you know, it was quite an interesting uh, uh, sort of business program. Do what I do. I'm looking for, you know, things I can use in training courses, etc. cetera. Uh, and I remember one guy came on and uh, he'd invented, inverted commas, a piece of plastic that went on the end of a cucumber. And basically he said to the dragons who were sat there with all their money on the table, this is going to change the way people view cucumbers in the fridge. And I'm like, right, okay. And it was essentially a piece of plastic that clipped on the end of a cucumber. And I think uh, Duncan Bannantyne said in his usual sort of uh, um, fashion, um, why would I do that? And he said, well, it'll protect the end of your cucumber. And Duncan Bannantyne said, I just cut the last inch off. And my cucumber's fine, thank you very much. And he said, he used the phrase, congratulations, you've solved a problem that doesn't exist. And yeah. I presume you've got elements of that going on in your world where people are, are passionate about something because they're friends of told them it's a good idea, but no one's actually had the sanity to say to them, it actually, nobody needs this thing. Yeah, I think we, we do, when we first started out in 2005, we did kind of get a lot of um, inquiries from inventors and entrepreneurs, and there was a stark difference between the two. Um, I think the, just going back to your cucumber, I think I did see that program. I think it was, you know, the chap did create a solution to what you could argue is a problem, but he was trying to invent something that people didn't need. Um, so the cucumber thing is really about user behavior. Um, 
So um, it just kind of demonstrates that you can design a product, but you ha- if you haven't thought about the user, then it will fail. Mm. Um, so in our studio in Thirst, we've got a Sinclair C5. A lot of people listening to this podcast probably won't know what I'm talking about. They can Google it, though, can't they? If they Google Sinclair C5 and C, it was the future of transportation, in inverted commas, in the mid-'80s. It's, it's hung on your wall, isn't it, in the it office? Is, yeah. yeah. And that, the reason why we've got the C5 is because you could argue that the, the Sinclair C5 was the first hybrid transport vehicle uh, designed by Lotus. Um, you know, technologically brilliant, one could argue. Um, but the thing was literally a foot and a half from the floor. And the, the concept was that the, that the user uh, would sit in the C5, which is at a very low height, and put their, put their handlebars underneath their, uh, underneath their knees and kind of drive, uh, pedal, and or use assisted battery to get around town. Um, so you could argue, yeah, it's a design solution. But the reality was that why it was a spectacular fail is because there was no... There was no um, uh, research. Well, there probably was research, but there was no fundamental understanding of the user. So, you know, what we would do is look at the user that is part of the holistic process from the outside. So it might be a good idea, but would the user actually use it? Mm. And so not talk to your friends about it, but, you know, go into the market, have some consumer trials, have some focus groups where people will tell you things that you do not actually sometimes want to know. Mm. But if you can learn that early, so we have a mantra, um, Fail fast, fail cheap. Uh, so what we try and do, it sounds counterproductive, is we try and kill ideas early because we don't want a client to spend lots and lots of money and lots of time on something that if or when they did launch it, it would be compromised and a, and, and a failure. Mm. Well, if you look at the Sinclair C5, the user experience would have been anything but uh, relaxing, I would have thought. Um, and particularly given these days, you know, the size of lorries and so the size of, you know, the buses and the ben- the double bendy buses and things in town. I live in York, which is a cycle city, um, and it's got cycle tracks and cycle paths. It may well just about survive um, that kind of journey. But you put that on a road next to anything like an SUV or anything above, and you would be absolutely scared beyond your wits, wouldn't you, really? Yeah. So it was never going to be successful on yeah. that basis, really, yeah. yeah. The interesting thing is it's kind of a design icon now for, mm. for actually for the wrong reasons but we do have a bit of a soft spot for the Sinclair C5 which is why it's on our wall it just reminds people when clients come in and they think they've got a good idea that we just kind of point at the C5 and kind of explain that lots of people have got good ideas but if it's not if you don't consider the journey intellectual property commercial viability um, then there are there are higher chances of that particular product failing. Mm. Well, going back to the guy on Dragon's Den, I do remember Peter Jones uh, actually asked the guy, he said, tell me you haven't remortgaged your house to support the uh, development of this product. And the guy just gulped as if to say, I'm not going to answer that question, but I suspect he may have done so. Yeah, I mean, as I say, when we first started out in 2005, we did get approached by lots of kind of inventors and we don't, and we have a filtering system. We actually don't really work with inventors, and we haven't done for qu- quite a long time. Uh, we work more with uh, SMEs and spin-outs from universities and PLCs and manufacturers. And usually um, the need for the product has been defined by the um, account managers or the salespeople that are on the ground talking to their particular clients about something which is new or needs to be innovated or disruptive. So we tend to work with kind of, you know, um, spin-outs that have got a really good technology or companies that have been around quite a long time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, but the, the process of innovation is still 
very, very um, difficult because, you know, everybody in industry wants to be the best, whether it's having a product which is cheaper, um, more agile, has got more functionality. Everybody's looking for their USP and innovation usually kind of drives that. So we'd usually work with a client that actually knows what their deliverables are to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't think it, there are lots of inventors out there that, that actually aren't inventors. They are entrepreneurs, but they like to kind of call themselves inventors. Mm-hmm. Um, normally with us, an inventor classically won't necessarily be able to get a product to market because they don't have the entrepreneurial kind of spirit. Okay. Um, and we, 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 so we have a really good filtering system from the outset when we get inquiries. Usually those questions are, um, where are you with your intellectual property? Um, what's your route to market? Uh, what are the competing technologies? Mm. Uh, what budget do you have? That, those kind of questions. And if somebody can't kind of answer those questions, um, you know, kind of with authority, then we will kind of ask them to go and do some more research or go and see an IP specialist or go and talk to an organization that might fund some early stage kind of conceptual development of a, of a product. And there's funding around for those kind of things in the UK, is there, Richard, for uh, sort of t- idea generation and, and qualification then? Yeah, there are there are various kind of funding pots out there, but as as you would expect, they are very, very difficult to, uh, to access. Um, so here in the kind of uh, lead city region, there's a local enterprise partnership, LEP, and they have, they have some programs called Access Innovation. Um, and they have funding of something like 30%, um, up to something like £25,000, I think. Um, there are other uh, funding pots out there. There's something called Spark Fund, which is from University of Hull, uh, which I think is around the same kind of region. There is also something called um, Economic Growth Solutions, which was kind of a reincarnation of what was called the Manufacturing Advisory Service, which I think is something like 10K, which is something like 30 or 33% funded. Mm. But as with most things, they won't fund ideas. They would want to see that the, whether it's an inventor, an entrepreneur, or or an SME or a manufacturer have done their kind of groundwork because, Mm. you know, there is an aspect of risk to any funding which is kind of appropriated. There are, there are things out there, but, you know, for us, I think um, we need to know that the client, whether it's an SME or a spin-out or a manufacturer or a PLC, are absolutely committed to making this, making it a success. Because yeah. I think a lot of the thing about innovation is that it's, a lot of it is down to the people. If you've got a really good team of people that want to kind of move mountains and, and innovate, then you can actually do some great things. If there is kind of a conflict of interest or the wrong management team around it, then it's always it's always far more difficult to try and get good solutions. It's going to hit the buffers at some stage, isn't it, on that basis because of politics or you know lack of internal buy-in or those kind of uh, issues. Yeah, yeah, there's got to be complete buy-in from the outset. So we spend a lot of time at the start of projects, um, strategizing, looking at risk, uh, getting people's buy-in. Uh, so fundamentally, we all understand what we're trying to achieve. Okay. Um, the British have got a history of, of being great inventors. You use the word inventors, but entrepreneurs as well, particularly in product design. Um, if you can, without breaching any confidentiality issues, um, do you want to share with us some of the sort of products and fascinating sort of um, uh, design um, aspects that you've, you've delivered in terms of getting products to market? Because when I come into your studio in Thirsk, you're always designing things that look like they're going into people and operating. It, it's quite a... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always wondering, you know, what does that implement do? Have you got some in, uh, interesting stories of things that you might have done over the, over the years? 
Yeah, so um, since we've been around, we've designed lots of different products, uh, nursery products, um, medical devices, healthcare, industrial, and we've worked with the likes of uh, Recaro and Network Rail. But I think what we really enjoy is medical device design. Um, to design a medical device that goes into somebody's body, you've really got to know what you're doing. So I would like to think that because we work on a lot of medical devices, that it kind of demonstrates that we're a safe pair of hands. Um, so the things I can think of over the last kind of 14 years is uh, probably one of them is the obstetric forceps. So we were approached by the NHS um, to help with creating a device for assisted delivery. So without trying to go into, into a, a lot of detail, there are two types of assisted deliveries. Well, hang on, uh, some people might be eating their lunch or yeah. having their breakfast, Richard, while we're uh, listening or watching this podcast. So you know, keep the details as vague as you can on that one. <laughs> So um, one is Vontus, i.e. suction cup, and the other one is forceps. Um, they've both got features and benefits, um, but there's no one kind of medical device for assisted delivery which has got the efficacy of both. So we were commissioned by the, by the uh, NHS uh, to look into it. And um, a couple of years, fast forward a couple of years, and we, we designed an obstetric forceps which has got a traction device that allows the obstetrician to understand uh, what kind of traction they are using when they are delivering a baby. There is a point in time when you have a traction force or a pull force when you're doing assisted delivery where it becomes traumatic to the to the uh, mother and the baby. Mm. So this is a device that allows the, um, the clinician, the obstetrician, to understand at what point they need to stop on the traction and, and convert to a, a, a C-section. Um, so we're really pleased about that. Um, another one, that's, which, prob- that's probably saved some lives in its time, Richard, hasn't it? I would have thought. Uh, I would, I would think so. I would think so. It's made, it, it kind of makes um, the whole process safer. Mm. Um, so if you roll back, the obstetric forceps were invented in something like the 18th century, and they've not really <laughs> changed since. It's a very kind of raw method of delivering babies, but obviously it works. So, mm. but the problem was that there's no way of knowing. If you imagine you're an obstetrician and it's three o'clock in the morning, you've been called out for a kind of um, for to, to help with assisted delivery, and there's lots of adrenaline flying around. The obstetrician doesn't actually know whether it's a large obstetrician or or a, or a petite obstetrician. You don't actually know what kind of traction force you are applying, mm. and um, so things like that really kind of really kind of interests us. Excellent. Um, another one which we are working on at the moment is something called global health. So it's funded by the National Institute of Health Research, which is the research arm of the NHS. Uh, and what we're doing is working with some academics and clinicians in the UK and also in rural India, so in uh, West Bengal. Um, and the essence of the project is to help create a laparoscopic medical device which increases the chances of recovery after abdominal surgery. So if you think that at the moment in rural India, if somebody's got a problem in their abdomen, whether it's gallbladder or whatever... Uh, a rural surgeon with a pop-up surgery uh, will have to carry out open surgery, and the risks of that are quite significant in terms of infection control. So what we're doing is we're taking best practice of lap surgery in the West and trying to apply it to rural India. That It's got its own challenges in terms of the availability of CO2 to insufflate the abdomen, so blow the abdomen up. Abdomen up. But we're just working on a device that will, will kind of, um, which can be deployed in rural India. Now, for us, that's kind of, that is real, raw, and it's a very humbling project because um, in rural India, if you if you can't work, then you can't feed your family. It's as basic as that. So mm-hmm. we're going out to India in um, November to go and um, 
do some trials and, and meet some more surgeons. So, you know, we do, we do, you know, do transactional kind of projects for the likes of Recaro and Network Rail, but mm. they, they're ones that really kind of make us, um, you know, job, job satisfaction are things like uh, medical devices because they actually do make a difference to people's lives. Excellent. Okay. Well, you've got a young, talented team at the uh, studio in Thirsk, haven't you, really? Do yep. you, you quick question. It's not really relevant to innovation, et cetera. Um, do you recruit for talent? Do you recruit for sort of design experience? Or do you recruit for attitude? How, how do you get your, your team? Because they are young, they are dynamic, and, you know, they're pretty fresh when it comes to uh, the sort of business world, really. Yeah, good question. Um, to, to recruit good designers... Uh, who have the right skill set is incredibly difficult. Um, the way that we do it is we uh, look at the talent from um, kind of design courses across the UK, and um, there are things, there are exhibitions called uh, New Designers, which is every year down in London. And what we tend to do is try and recruit the best of the best. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't really know until you actually employ somebody, but what we're actually after is raw talent. So. Skills you can actually learn, but what we what we recruit are people that are passionate about design. Mm. They live and breathe it, um, as you know, as everybody in the team does. Um, they're inquisitive. Um, they want to make a difference. They realise that design isn't necessarily having a brief from a client and jumping onto a CAD, um, onto a laptop and creating a product and then trying to uh, justify why it's the shape it is or how it functions as it does. Mm. So um, what we need is people that are inquisitive that can go into theatre and observe a a medical uh, operating procedure and see what the context of the problem is and to be able to articulate what the potential solutions might be. So it is incredibly difficult to get the right kind of people Um, and that's kind of how we do it. And I think, you know, we're, we're a small team and we're a small team because I want to keep it a small team. I don't want to be a large business that has account managers because mm. what we like to do is have, you know, first-hand experience of working with clients and, and part of it is the journey. Part of it is the passion of working directly with a client all the way through the journey. Okay. So you also recruit for strong constitution and things if they're going into, uh, going into theatre to watch. I once rang you and you said, I can't take your call, Nick, I'm in theatre. I thought you were watching The Greatest Showman <laughs> or uh, something of that nature. Then I worked out that you were actually watching some kind of open surgery with uh, some forceps delivery or whatever, and uh, I, I quickly put the phone down. So <laughs> there's, a, there's an interpretation of that. So I, so when I meet your team next time, I, I guarantee they've got a strong constitution on them, have they? Yeah, we've, we've seen a lot of procedures. Uh, so <laughs> working on several medical devices at the moment and um you know i think the the key is you've really got to and we also do cadaveric trials so the way that we validate a a concept or an innovation is we have to um use uh, cadavers to 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 trial the process because obviously you can't design a medical device obstetric forceps for example and then use it on a live person you need a mechanism to to try it to demonstrate that it that it that it, that it is fit for purpose yeah. So we do all sorts of, you know, we do all sorts of different things. But I think the key is that you've got to really, you can't design pro- a product in isolation and take from face value um, what, for example, a surgeon will tell you what they think they need. You have mm. to actually go in and observe firsthand the context of the problem. And that way you've got a much better chance of cre- creating a solution because sometimes as as product designers, we can see things that, that, that clients can't. So mm. it's a classic kind of, 
you know, usability study that we do. I did ring you once as well, and you said, uh, don't worry, um, no one's looking because they've got no heads on the cadavers because the yeah. dentistry school yeah. had taken the heads. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll be honest with you, that's a different world to where I operate, and it did make me feel a little bit queasy. I'm not sure I could fit on your team from that perspective. No, I think I think part of it with medical devices, it's, it's, uh, it's a very ser- obviously a very serious business, and um, we take things... You know, to design a medical device, you've really got to have a s- set of skills. And um, I, I, I see it as, I do actually see it as a privilege. Yeah. Um, because the end game to all of this is to work with the cadavers to actually make devices that are going to save people without, without sizing cheesy, you know, making a difference to and potentially saving people's lives, you know, and, and that's the reality of it. Well, the Ru- Rural India Project is, is an absolute example of that. You know, you were making a massive difference to the surgeons and to the people that they operate on. So that must give you a lot of pride, as you've said. Um, I've got a question about kind of what's next, really. Innovation is one of those things that, um, it, it, by the very nature, it hasn't been invented yet, for example, and innovation is part of that process. But in your studio, you've got 3D printing, you've got virtual reality suite. Um, so what's next, really? Um, yeah, so in answer to your question, yeah, we are passionate about innovation. That's our, that's our thing. Um, and I would like to see, I would like to think I'm an ambassador for innovation as well. So, um, you're, uh, you're involved on a, a number of bodies, aren't you, for that in terms of the sort of representative of the, of the, of the industry and the sector. Is that right? Yeah. So I do various kind of, as well as running the business, you know, kind of consultancy roles and, um, assessing, um, applications for, funding etc and I've been a mentor for the design council mm. um, I'm also a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts if anybody knows what that is um, okay. so yeah innovation's our thing um, so for me it's about the, the process of made, making products and services better so for example we kind of invested in 3D printing about eight years ago before it became a thing um, we now have I think five 3D printers in the studio uh, 3D printing is really a tool. It's, it's, it's the same as being a screwdriver or a hammer. It just allows us to do a, a better job to create products quicker, compress the lead time. It allows us to articulate initial design thinking to clients because we can show them a three-dimensional a prototype as opposed to trying to explain to, to a client using a sketch. So it's very 3D printing is very powerful. Um, in terms of other stuff that we've got, so we invested in virtual reality about four years ago, and that, again, is about experience design. Rather than make a huge uh, prototype and then trying to explain to a client how it might work or function, uh, we can create uh, design solutions virtually and then put them into our um, virtual platform, and then we can put the headset on the client, and then they can literally be in that VR world. And the, the 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 beauty of this is that it's it's far cheaper than making physical product, but because the client is put in the virtual world, the, the feedback is different because they actually think that they are stood next to the next kind of the product which we've created. They right. they interact far far better, and you can get some really good kind of feedback from VR. Um, in terms of stuff that we're looking at, at the moment, so um, we're looking at having more um, in-house capacity to for our workshops. So we're looking at laser cutting machines, uh, CNC machines, so things that machine from blocks. So it's subtractive manufacturing mm. and also 3D scanning. So we've always got a finger on the pulse. Um, 3D scanning used to be pretty expensive, but it's now starting to become mature where we can actually perhaps adopt it and use it in our studio. Um, other things that are out there are 3D printing of metal. Um, that is That is still becoming mature but it wouldn't surprise me in the next 
kind of five years, we'd probably invest in a metal 3D printer. Okay. So a lot, a lot of investment to keep ahead of the game and to make sure you're providing the options for your clients to, I guess, see their product before they've invested too much in, like you say, manufacturing, tooling costs, et cetera, those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, and it's a very, very good strategic process because what we want to do is validate design thinking right the way through the process. The worst thing you can, that you can do as a designer is assume the design brief and assume that you've designed a product which is fit for purpose and then you manufacture an expensive finished prototype which looks like the real thing and then you present it to the client that's a dangerous place to be because the client might say that's not the size i anticipated it to be that's not how i expected it to look yeah. that's not how I, how I expected it to function um it's the wrong shape it's whatever it might be yeah so we we use 3d printing to validate early stage design so um kind of early stage functional prototypes because when you go into 3d and vr you can it's got a really good feedback loop to iterative design design process um and that's that that's the way we so we all, we're always looking at technologies which we can adopt if they are appropriate okay one final question for you let's assume i've got a product idea uh it doesn't matter what the area of product might be whether it's medical or uh, or whatever um one piece of advice you would give me if you're looking to say okay you got an idea but you want to make it commercially viable and that's really important i just don't want to make a product i want to make sure that product is accessible one piece of golden advice you give me is a uh, from your your experience and background, Richard. Um, try to kill it early. Excellent. Okay. Uh, interesting way. You've got an idea. I'm just about to uh, sort of uh, shatter your dreams early. But if you say fail early, fail cheap, is yeah. that is that that's yeah? So it's very it is counterintuitive. So I mean, say we work with clients that are that know what they want to do and the reasons why they want to do it. Um, but you need to. Um, kind of validate early early stage so um and you know in a, in a nice in a nice way you need to look at way you need to look at points of weakness of your particular innovation mm. not to try and kill it holistically but look for areas of weakness that you can improve on okay. because otherwise you want to learn points of weakness in a particular innovation or a product in the early stages mm. not when you spent lots of money and showed it to your first focus group <laughs> um, so it sounds completely counterintuitive when we say to clients, we're going to try and kill your idea. Yeah. But that's our responsibility as a business. That's what we want to do. We want products to be a success. And the way to do that is to look for points of weakness early on, because then we can tackle them and get solutions. Excellent. Well, Richard Hall from PDM, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope the audience who are viewing and listening have got some ideas uh, and hope those ideas don't get killed too early in the process. But um, we'll put your contact details on the podcast uh, information. Everyone wants to talk to you about their ideas. You prefer to be entrepreneurial and inventor. So any inventors are okay, but if they're entrepreneurial, that's better for you and yep. better for them. So Richard, pleasure. Thank you for uh, attending the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me.